So for those who uh, uh, read the paper yesterday, uh, huh, odd way to start this, um, that's a truncated version of what I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> uh, I only had 600 words for the chieftain, and this is a little bit longer than that. So a um, couple of different things that I want to mention just because uh, I like to do this. There are two different stories of Jesus' birth in the Bible. There is no story in Mark. Um, Mark starts right off with his baptism. He's baptized, he wandered, boom, we're done. And then a little while later, people were like, well, so how was Jesus as a little boy? And so the gospel writers added birth narratives. And each gospel writer did it differently depending on who they wanted to talk to. Matthew's story is completely different than Luke's story. Um, we like to squish them together because that's what we do, right? Because for some reason we think if we take four completely different stories and make one story, then we have the full thing, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, and then there is no nativity story in John. Um, the further we get away from the historical Jesus, the more divine Jesus becomes in Mark. Jesus is divine at baptism. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus is divine at birth. And in John, Jesus is divine from the very beginning of time. Uh, thank uh, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan for that. So anyway, these are some of the differences that uh, I think are awesome. Uh, the genealogy in Matthew goes back to Abraham, but it goes all the way to Adam in Luke. Angels announce the birth, but in Matthew, they announce to Joseph, and in Luke, they announce to Mary, which is um, part of what we heard. Who visits? Well, in Matthew, wise men bring gifts to Jesus at his house. In Luke, shepherds go to a manger. It's hard to put a house up there to put Jesus in, though. So we do a manger. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to Matthew, but he was born in Nazareth, according to Luke. So there's some storytelling there to get Luke to Bethlehem, or to get Jesus to Bethlehem and Luke. The family travels because in Matthew, they have to go to Egypt and then to Nazareth because Herod wants to kill Jesus. He is threatened by a new king of the Jews, evidently. And in Luke, they go from Nazareth to Bethlehem because Augustus is calling for a census. Now, Matthew is probably one of the most Jewish of all the Gospels. And uh, in Matthew, he is rewriting the Moses story. So hence the parallels between Jesus and Moses and the being killed and the having to be sent away kind of deal. And in Luke, he is saying that uh, Jesus is the savior of everybody. So that's why Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And this is why, this is how the scripture is fulfilled according to Matthew and Luke. Matthew, scripture is fulfilled because out of Egypt I have called my son and he shall be called a Nazarene. And in Luke, he is descended from King David. So those are the differences between Matthew and Luke. So when we are singing our Christmas carols and our Advent songs and we are putting our nativity sets up, um, I don't know, I just think it's fascinating. Um, this sort of stuff, I just love this kind of stuff. I'm a, I'm a Bible nerd, I guess. Um, so anyway, there's that. Um, 
So the scripture that we read is known as the Magnificat. It is the Song of Mary. It's called the Magnificat from the Latin, meaning to magnify. The first word of the Latin translation of the section of this scripture. In it, we get a foreshadowing of the amazing way that God is going to change things. For centuries, there had been prophesied a Messiah who would come and stand up to oppression and rescue God's people and overthrow the tyrants and uh, bring up the weak and help the poor and stand up to those who are trampling down on folks. Roman rulers believed that the way to obtain peace was through dominance. I don't know if we can draw any parallels to that today. Rome thought, if we beat you up enough, if we kill enough of your rebels, if our military intimidates you, then just the suggestion of war with us will keep you in line. The violence didn't always have to be happening, the threat of violence happening was enough. Theologian Dom Crossan writes that an altar built to Emperor Augustus that still stands today uh, says that if you walk around the altar on all four sides, you will see different sculptures. And what they represent are religion, war, victory, peace. The Romans believed that if you followed good religious practices to keep the gods happy, that would result in victory in war, and victory in war meant peace. People lived under horrible rules and terrible tyrants for eons. They were enslaved, persecuted, exiled. They were killed off by wars and dominated by economic oppression and violence and threats of violence. And by the time the first century came around, there had been no crueler overseer than the Roman Empire. Might was proved by fight. The nation was militarized. Every little hint of uprising was crushed before it could take hold. And there were constant uprisings. And those uprisings were constantly crushed. Everywhere you turned, you saw the face of the empire. Peace was obtained and maintained through threat of and victory in war. So what is so different about Mary's story? Well, first of all, Mary's a woman. In the first century, women were not much, really, for the most part. Children, even less so. In Scripture, God will normally make God's self known through men, through prophets, kings, boys who become kings, right? But this time... God has chosen to be revealed in the most subversive of ways. As a child, through a woman. Not to the mighty, not to the strong, not to the ones with power. God comes to us through the life of a young woman. And by young woman, I mean 13 years old, probably. Right? So when Luke brings together Elizabeth and Mary, John and Jesus... He's writing about God's power and God's grace. Grace for the entire world, not just the select few. And God will use God's power to bring this grace in a way that would seem otherwise impossible. 
Through the song that he has Mary sing, Luke is proclaiming what is known as the great reversal, right? It's what's considered blessed and favored by society, status, money, power, rank, privilege, likes, followers, retweets, all that kind of stuff, is not what is considered blessed by God today. Those that are cast aside, pushed away, the dirty, the useless, the stinky, the smelly, they will be the ones that are included, comforted, accepted, and loved when God's kingdom is fully realized. The way it is now is not the way it's going to always be. And the light of God's love comes through us in Jesus, this prophet, this baby, born in humble beginnings to a family of and surrounded by outcasts, the unclean, the useless. And when Elizabeth greets Mary, she proclaims at the very top of her lungs, proclaims the greetings of blessings, of joy, and happiness. This is not about a future story. This is not some way off time in the distance, in the future, far away from us. This isn't about what might happen if we do it right and if we live right. This isn't about what's going to happen if we proclaim belief in the correct dogma. It's not about someday God cleaning up the mess. It's not about someday God lifting up the downtrodden. It's about today and how we can help God's kingdom be realized. The story of the birth of Jesus is the story of God breaking into our lives. This story of this ridiculous, incredible, magnificent joy. This knowledge that not only will things be different, but things are different at this very moment. God is making things different now. Dom Crossan and Marcus Borg write that Mary's song emphasizes the great reversal brought about by the coming of Jesus, the scattering of the proud, the bringing down of the powerful, sending the rich away empty, lifting the lowly, filling the hungry. Only when our ears are dulled by the habituated ways of hearing do we miss the absolutely radical meaning of this language. This is the hope that is expressed in Hannah's hymn, the model for Mary's hymn. Hannah was an elderly woman when she became pregnant with the prophet Samuel, and her hymn to God is, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Indeed, this is the hope of the law and of the prophets, that the world will be changed. To say the obvious, this is hope for the entire world. It's not about life beyond death. It's about the transformation that happens here. It's about God breaking through in this life and changing things. It's not about some future way off in the distance kind of thing. If you reread this part, Mary doesn't say, God will. Mary says, God has. Right here in this world. Meister Eckhart is a 13th century German theologian and mystic, and he writes that the birth of Jesus is something that happens within us. We birth Jesus every day. We are the ones who give birth to light and hope. We are the ones who bear witness to God's grace and love, even in the most improbable of circumstances. We bear witness to the fact that the world is indeed turned upside down, that what was thought to be lowly is risen up, 
that what was thought to be weak is strong, that what was thought to be unclean is now considered holy, that mercy and justice, not violence and fear, is the way to peace. That's God's promise, and that is something to sing about. Amen.